Stepron, and you're listening to the Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Tonight and welcome to season 12 broadcast finale of the stupid cancer show the voice of young adult cancer my name is matthew zachary i am a 17 year young adult survivor of brain cancer and my name is annie goodman journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor and we're your hosts for the stupid cancer show it is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year so got cancer under 40 sucks huh Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Join us tonight as we welcome rock star, singer, songwriter, and leukemia survivor Andrew McMahon on the show. The frontman for band Something Corporate and Jack Mannequin will share his story, some new music, and where he's headed with his philanthropic efforts with the Dear Jack Foundation Executive Director. And our Survivor Spotlight is on Aaron O'Leary. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Stupid Cancer Show as we come to you live from the Chemo Deck, a fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. All righty. Hello, Annie and Kenny. Hello, Matthew and Kenny. Or should I call you Anne? No. <laughs> oh, boy. Pet peeve. Pet peeve. Yeah. Hello, Matt. What's going on? And Anne. No, I'm, <laughs> Matt's okay. You can't call me Maddie. All right, Maddie. My, my sixth grade gym teacher called me Maddie. It was very creepy. Did he also follow you around the track when you couldn't <laughs> run, you couldn't <laughs> run a, the 14-minute mile? Yeah, I had these really short shorts on, too. It was oh really boy. embarrassing. One of those really thin, like, anyway. You you weren't born yet when I was. Yeah. This, this feels like therapy right now. <laughs> Bad childhood memories in yeah, the Super Cancer it, it, Show. It was a little creepy. It was weird. Anyway, what's going on? How you been? I turned 32 last week. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. That's right. You were uh, getting ready to celebrate last week. I Monday. was. So How, what did you do? I went to dinner with some friends and had a lot of very fattening meals. Nice. And ate my face off and had two cupcakes. I had work. I had a cupcake for breakfast. And a cupcake for lunch and wine for dinner. That's awesome. Somewhere I was drinking in your honor. That's totally I'm cool. Celebrating. I appreciate it. So it was a fun birthday. Got to see some friends and 
Facebook notifications and you know everything that comes along with having a birthday. Uh, yes. What was the grand total of the Facebook notification? Um, I think two hundred and seven. Is happy to that's some pretty fancy birthday message. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a really good day. I had a really, I had a great day. How does it feel to be thirty-two? It feels weird. Yeah. Time flies. I've been in the city now officially nine years. And it is truly amazing how fast life goes by in New York City. Yes. And this is, like, not even, like, cancer-related, like, how much my life has changed since my 30th birthday. Yes. This is just how much my life has changed since my I turned 23. Yes. And I'm now, you know, here almost a decade, so. No, my wife and I have now officially known, known each other, like, 13 years, which is undiculous. That's I, cray. As I make up words. It's cray-cray. Yeah. Kenny, what are you up to? I've been alive for 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> you look uh, like it since you shaved yeah, off the beard. you got to stop doing that, bro. Yeah, that's, the crap out of me. That's, that's newsworthy, I guess. Uh, not much. Summer, it's almost over. It's almost August. And we're off for the summer. We for are. the rest of the summer. When do we start back up, Matt? The first week of September? I think it's the 16th. The, yeah. That second Monday. Because the first Monday is like Labor Day or whatever. Right, we back wanna... to school. Yeah. yeah. People are busy. Yeah. Some Jewish holidays we'll thrown in. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It's the Jewish holiday music. Here we go. Mazel Tov. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Shemini Aseret, Shem Kostara. Shana Tovah. Oi, Gevalt. Oi, Gevalt. Too much. Too much. Too much. Anyway, we. I just wanted to talk briefly because we had a really... Um, amazing uh, news hit this weekend. On Thursday, I got a call from Fox News, and they basically said that we are doing a piece on teen cancer because of the passing of um, those Talia. Talia and that that musician Zach. and Zach, who were in, became internet sensations by using social media to share their stories. And our very own Lauren Scott, who is our 16-year-old now 16-year-old national spokesperson and, and teen awesome advocate. Uh, is in hospice care with the hashtag uh, Lola's bucket list, mm-hmm. which is tragic and horrible, and, and we hate it. But uh, they wanted to do a story about her and her relationship with stupid cancer and to highlight some of the major disparities facing teens and young adults. Mm-hmm. So they called on Thursday, like, we'll be there 9 a.m. on Friday. So they descended upon the office. Maureen got some on-air time mm-hmm. <laughs> when the segment aired. She's catching up to Candy with this other bit with CBS. Yes. And uh, they did a really... Good job. Good. Lauren called in on Skype, and what did you think of the piece? I saw the piece. It was great. Uh, Lauren looked amazing, as she always does. And they showed, I saw I saw a cameo of Kenny in one of her uh, Instagram photos they showed. That's right, that's right. Um, so they showed a lot of great pictures of, like, the different things that she's doing and what she's trying to accomplish while, you know, she's in hospice care and... Um, you know, everything she's trying to accomplish on her bucket list. And it's also important to show that this is not an old lady disease. She has sarcoma. Right. Um, and uh, which is very rare. But at, at the same time, you know, it's a disease that sometimes hits children. Yep. And she's been battling, I think, for four years. Oh, why not? She came down. Kenny, did she come to 11 or 12? 12. Yeah. She was 14, right? And 12. The, uh, 14 or 15. Yeah. Yeah, so they did a really good piece, and it highlighted definitely the disparities, how hard it is, but also the role social media plays yes. in cancer as well, and how it connects people. I liked how he, he took my one of the, something a throwaway line I did during the segment was basically that there aren't enough survivors in the world combined 
who have viewed all the YouTube videos collectively. So people are watching this that are not cancer people. Mm -hmm. They just are inspired by these stories. Talia was getting like millions of hits because yes. she did a hit. She did an interview on Ellen, and then well, after Ellen was a big bump for her. Ellen was and huge. And kudos to Ellen for doing that. And after she did Ellen was when she got the photo shoot for CoverGirl. Right. Which was, I believe, on her bucket list or something was one of her goals. It was one of Talia's goals. And, um, you know, Zach had the song. I think it was called In the Cloud. In the Cloud, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was amazing as well. And uh, it's very, very unfortunate what happens to these children. But at the same time, the piece is very important to highlight that this that this happens to children. And it reached a, you know, big global audience. Another thing he said in the piece was that people uh, are getting more from the social media than the survivors are getting by using it, mm -hmm. which is very compelling. It's good to share stories. Yep. It's good to, share, you know, get information, resources, doctors, cancer centers, you know, perhaps especially with children, connecting parents, you know, people who are our age could connect partners, family members, siblings, you name it. Um, you could ask all kinds of, uh, you know, embarrassing questions or, you know, just information connecting people. And the biggest thing is that they don't feel like they're alone. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it, the isolation is really, I, I think I said something like, uh, it's hard enough being in this age group to begin with. God knows we all remember being 16 and how horrible it was to be 16. I was really awkward. Well, anyway, it was a really good bump. You can catch it on our it's on our Facebook wall. You can also search Stupid Cancer on Fox News and it pops up right away. And Very it's cool. airing locally. They they actually pitched it out to all the local affiliates and it's airing I think through the week. That it's will awesome. be enormous traffic. Hopefully, I'm sure you guys, you guys are the internet geeks. You'll see that your traffic will surely bump up yeah. on the website, it's which is good. all good news. We're bracing ourselves. Yeah. Brace yourself to crash. <laughs> as, we, as we did for Andrew McMahon. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, our chat room's on fire right now, and we're gonna, expecting a really great show tonight. We're going to be talking to Aaron very briefly, and then Andrew's coming up at 8.30. Um, so uh, I guess uh, let's bring her out. Okay. Yeah. With my horrible music that I promised to change at some point. Okay, Erin O'Leary. She was diagnosed at 19 with osteosarcoma. Erin O'Leary endured five months of chemo, then had an almost complete humorous resection, which was replaced by a cobalt chromium rod, and then four more months of chemo. Twelve years later, she's the $6 million woman and is here tonight to share her story. Erin, welcome. Hey, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome aboard the Stupid Cancer Show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Very excited right, so, to be on. So my first question is, how bionic are you, and what do you do at airports? <laughs> so I am very bionic. I really only have a small piece of my humerus left, uh, the part just above my elbow. And other That's than that, funny. it's all metal, including the joint. And they actually had to remove my entire deltoid muscle as well as a third of my bicep. So I have pretty strong limitations from that. And I definitely go off at the airports. I'm actually kind of a security barometer because I can tell if we're on high-level security because I will beep when I go through. Sometimes I don't beep. And then I'm like, oh, okay, not as high as security now. <laughs> so you are from the OC, I see. Yes, I am. I just made that up. <laughs> OC, I see. Uh, well, so life, life in the OC growing up. And then uh, you moved to San Diego. 
And yes. you're kind of smart. You got a you're you're a doctor, correct? <laughs> uh, that's true. I am a pediatrician. Yes. So clearly a lot smarter than us. We we will do our best to play smart tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. What what moved you to uh, move into medicine? So there was always a part of me that really liked science a lot, but I also loved teaching and I loved working with children. And then I realized, well, if I become a pediatrician, I can do both of those things. So that's what ultimately had me go into medicine. I was pre-med at USC, um, but I ended up deciding to get my degree in health promotion and disease prevention studies just because I thought it was an important topic for for me to understand going into medicine as opposed to having a biology degree or a chemistry degree. I felt that it made me a little bit more well-rounded. Do you think that maybe you were uh, predisposed to it uh, before you got sick or going through that that situation at 19 years old um, maybe moved the needle a bit on your interest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting, actually. The summer that I ended up getting diagnosed, I had actually finished up my freshman year at USC, and I was actually volunteering in the Pediatric Cancer Center um, on the floor there at UCI. And that whole summer I was working with these kids and volunteering on that floor, and then, no joke, at the end of that summer, I ended up getting diagnosed. So that summer actually helped me realize, okay, I definitely want to do pediatrics, but then all of a sudden, the cancer word that I'd been dealing with all summer, all of a sudden it was in my life. And it was completely devastating, as you guys know. Um, But I think it actually made me come out a lot stronger on the other side, and I think it's actually made me a better doctor because I'm able to relate to patients and their parents and understand the pain and the suffering that they're going through. But I also represent the coming out on the other side and that you can still have a life and be successful and do the things that you want to do, even though you had something that derailed you for a period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I know that sometimes doctors, you know, in different offices can feel they can seem very cold or detached. They're brilliantly intelligent, but at the same time, their bedside manner is lacking. So you have both. So let's <laughs> talk, so tell us a little bit, what is osteosarcoma? What was your humorous resection? This all sounds really painful, and <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know where to start, but it's humorous, so all I kept thinking is funny bone. Right. It's the humorous, humorous. You've never heard that before. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, so when I so the osteosarcoma essentially it's just a bone tumor, and the humerus is your upper arm bone. Uh, so yes, it is where your where your funny bone is located. Um, and when I was diagnosed, it's actually kind of interesting because most people with osteosarcoma, they end up just having kind of vague symptoms, maybe a little bit of pain at the site. But overall, just like not sleeping well and kind of, you know, getting sick, little colds all the time. And that was my freshman year. I was just getting sick constantly. But I thought it was, I'm living in a dorm. I'm a freshman. It's, you know, getting exposed to all these different things. But after I got diagnosed, the whole year ended up making much more sense to me. Um, And, well, with the osteosarcoma, then I ended up having the chemo. And then I had my humerus resection. And essentially, it was kind of a crazy situation because I had to, my my um, surgeon, he told me, he said, well, I want to save your arm. He said, but my goal is to save your life. So I actually had to sign my consent waiver that said, you know, you're going to try to save my arm, but if for some reason you get in there and you realize that it spread further than it, than you originally thought, originally thought that, you, that I would agree to an arm amputation. 
So I went into surgery not even knowing what I was going to come out with. And that was really, really scary. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. And my parents were kind of freaking out, too, because at that time I was 19. So I had full control over the situation. And they were that was very scary for them because I was the one getting asked, like, do you want to do this chemo? Do you not want to do this chemo? Do you want to do all these things? And of course, I was going to go. I wanted to survive. So I was going to do everything. But, yeah, when I woke up from that surgery and I looked down and I saw that I had five fingers, they were extremely swollen, but it was, I almost started crying. And then my surgeon came in and he said, and he was so concerned because there's a big nerve that actually wraps around your humerus that controls all of your finger motion and your hand motion. And he told me, he said, if I can, if I can save your arm, I'm hoping that you'll have nerve function. And he came in and he put his finger in between my, my fingers and he said, make a fist and squeeze. And I did. And he started crying there in the middle of the ICU after my surgery. And it was, it was pretty amazing because he, he essentially, he helped save my life, but he also allowed me to do the career that I wanted to do. That's beyond incredible. I love a good doctor story. Yeah. I, you don't hear them often enough. My, um, when I went back to my oncologist's office for the first time after I finished chemotherapy and radiation, my the nurse practitioner who I saw, you know, you always see your nurse practitioner more than see your actual doctor, she almost mm-hmm. cried the first time she saw me because I had hair again. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's great to hear stories where the doctors are so affected by us because sometimes you just, you want to know that they have a vested interest in you sur- mm-hmm. not just surviving, but thriving in life. Mm-hmm. I know. it's When I first got diagnosed, um, it was interesting because I actually fell at work, and I just kind of put my arm out to stop my fall. And my arm hurt really badly, like way worse than you would expect just for a really small fall. So I ended up, I waited for a couple of days, and it still really hurt. So I ended up going to an orthopedic surgeon who literally spent like three minutes with me and he told me and i'm not making this up he said you're exaggerating your pain and you're bathing it and that's why it's making it worse and he wrote me a note to return to full work and physical activity and sent me on my way and i was so so upset and i was a pre-med student so i was like i'm not making this up like i had acl surgery i knew what pain was you know and so i was so mad that i actually sought out a second opinion on my own and that doctor was like the complete opposite and he listened to me, he did a full exam, and he said, I totally agree, the pain that you're having does not really match with what your exam is. And he said, let's just do an x-ray, we can do them here in the office. And as soon as they did the first x-ray, the x-ray tech walked out of the room, and then the doctor walked back in, and I could see them talking behind like the glass wall, and I was like, uh-oh. And I was thinking, oh, I have a broken arm or something like that. And then they showed me the x-ray, and I just had huge black holes throughout my humerus. And I started crying because I knew it wasn't good at that point, and he pretty was pretty convinced that it was osteosarcoma as well. So, all right, you you, you put this little anecdote in your bio that you sent us, and I really mm-hmm. have to bring it up. Uh, it mm-hmm. just speaks to how we we love to use the hashtag pitchforks every now and then. Uh, mm-hmm. When you applied to med school, you had a professor say to you, and you, this is you were already in the clear from your cancer. Um, mm-hmm. Why would a medical school take a chance on someone who had cancer? What if it comes back? And I'm going to make up your response because I don't like your response. You then <laughs> took a knife 
and <laughs> severed off his head. <laughs> <laughs> All right, talk us through that moment. That's that's the oh. take a knife and sever off a head moment. Oh my gosh! So so the thing with applying to medical school is you have to get a whole bunch of letter of recommendations, and one of the requirements is that you get a letter of recommendation from some type of basic science professor. The problem with the basic science course is there are like 150, 200 people in the classes. There is no way that any of those professors actually know who you are. So I always thought that that was kind of a stupid process in the first place. So I didn't know this professor. I literally had to go and meet my, you know, check off my box requirement of getting a basic science letter. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go with biology because why not? And it was, I liked that class. And I went and I sat down with him, and then I had to explain why I had a year gap in my time during uh, at USC. And when I explained it, he kind of looked at me, and that's what he said. He said, why do you think that a medical school should take a chance on someone that had cancer? And what if it comes back? And I literally stood up, and I, you know, I said to him, well, this is all about taking chances, so how, that's no way to live. And then I also said, which I did not include in my little bio thing I sent you, but I also did say, you know, you could walk outside of this room and get hit by a car right now, so why should we even take a chance on you teaching us? And then I walked out. I was so mad. I was like, You should have said, oh by my. the way, I drive a Honda, and I know where you live. <laughs> and by the way, I'm going to smack you in the face right now. So, I've, so, yeah, I'm, like, dumbfounded by that. It's like going on a job interview and then being like, why should we hire you? You're going to die in six months. So yeah, exactly. it's crazy and it probably seems discriminatory i know that we have all kinds of laws on protecting people and i know that this is a long time ago but good god i'm glad that i hope i'm sorry that happened to you that's just mind-boggling so one of the other things um you say you know you are obviously your biggest health advocate uh so you started getting mammograms already uh you started so have you already started getting mammograms I did. I did. I started getting mammograms. I actually, I talked to my oncologist, my OB-GYN actually, and I just told her, I said, you know, I'm kind of a unique specimen. (laughs) I've had almost 30 CT scans, and I had recently gone to a lecture that was talking about actually secondary cancers that uh, children can get later on in life. And one of the things is they said, if you've had this amount of radiation to your chest, this increases your risk of breast cancer. So, of course, I went back and I did some research and I figured out, uh oh, I've had almost that amount of radiation to my chest. So I told her, I said, I wasn't really having any symptoms. And I asked her, I said, you know, what what would you recommend? And she said, I think that we should do something now for that because she said, it'll be a baseline for you. And obviously, I want to start a family soon. And I told her, I said, I want to make sure that I'm at my absolute healthiest when I'm trying to get pregnant so that I'm not the pregnant mom who all of a sudden finds out that they have breast cancer. And right. that's just such a devastating thing to me. And so I said, I just want to make sure that I'm doing everything on my end to advocate for myself and make sure that I'm at my healthiest. And so we ended up going ahead and doing the mammogram. And, of course, they found something, because they always do. So um, I actually have already had to have a lumpectomy. So that was something I just recently had, actually before, right before I went to the OMC conference. Well, you know, 12 years ago, um, it was kind of when they were just starting to realize that kids and teenagers and young adults, I thought I was 21 when I was diagnosed, so I'm right there with you at 19. You know, mm-hmm. you can't go through that, come out sort of clear, and then not deal with crap as a gift that keeps on giving. So, yes. 
they, they take a lot of pride today in, in ensuring that children and teens with cancer are made aware of the the new level of wonderful risk factors you have as a result of not dying from cancer when you mm-hmm. when you could have. Uh, was any of this discussed with you 12 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 12 years ago, to be honest, at that point there there was there weren't a lot of fertility options. I was pretty much told they said, "Do you have a friend you want to make an embryo with?" And I was like, "No, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> I'm only 19." <laughs> so that was really the main discussion that I remember having, which was about five seconds. And then kind of just throughout the years, I mean, I've stayed in contact with my oncologist. He's wonderful. And, um, you know, he told me, I said, you know, you know, when can I stop having yearly CT scans? And he said, okay, you know, at like 10 years we can stop doing those. And then we'll do yearly uh, chest x-rays. If you're having any symptoms, obviously then you need to go to the CT scan. And that's just because um, osteosarcoma can metastasize to the lungs. And so that's the first place that they look for um, any metastases. And so then I'm doing yearly chest x-rays, and then he also wants me doing yearly CBCs to roll out any secondary leukemias that, that I might get from my treatments that I had it. So he's been pretty on top of it for me, and I've also still kept in touch with my surgeon, and I just saw him recently, and he told me that I'm never going to have to have surgery again unless I do something stupid and hurt my arm. <laughs> so I was like, okay, good to know. And um, he, I mean, they're, they've been, been super wonderful, and they actually... When I start my job, they told me to send them cards because they have patients who are down in San Diego, and they said they want to send all their little pediatric kids to me. So, <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. And mm-hmm. so how did you find stupid cancer and everything that comes along with it? Did you go to a meetup? How did you get involved? Yeah, so um, I went to medical school at uh, UCI, which is the University of California in Irvine. And actually, Dr. Sender works at UCI and at Chalk, which is right down the street from UCI. And so it was, I think, like second year of medical school. Uh, I met him because he came and he gave a lecture, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this man is, like, so inspiring. He literally kind of brings, like, tears to your eyes when he talks because he's so passionate about what he does. And so I went and I met him, and then it was just a short while later that, that I'm too young for this at that time. Um, came up, and so I went to a couple of uh, group vintage, meetings just around. Vintage <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I went to a couple of meetings um, with some other cancer patients, people who were currently going through it or who were survivors, and then there was a big event, actually, um, between Chalk and UCI. Um, it was kind of the meeting of the minds, and everyone came together and got to meet everyone, and um, we actually got interviewed for YouTube videos, so I'm on YouTube somewhere <laughs> being interviewed about my experience, but yeah, that's how I ended up finding it and I just kind of stayed in contact with it that way and then of course when the opportunity came up to go to OMG uh, back in April I immediately took it and it was amazing it was so fun and it was so awe-inspiring and um, it was brilliant and was that the first time because um, obviously you were diagnosed 12 years ago so I'm too young for this mm-hmm. you're talking like 07, 08, 09 throughout that entire period of time were you at all ever introduced to any young adult-specific organizations or programs? Um, no. When I was diagnosed, I was pretty much the only one my age at the cancer center, and especially with my cancer. I mean, there was no one with my type of cancer there. And that was really, that gets back to a lot of isolation that we talk about, and that was really difficult for me because I was with all these old people who were kind of resigned to dying and were very negative and pessimistic and I'm like I'm 19 I have my whole life ahead of me and I wanted to look to the future 
And they, my oncologist, he's so sweet, he tried to set me up with someone who had the same type of cancer as me, but she was like 40 when she was diagnosed. So she comes in and she starts talking to me about how her husband was such a great support and her kids were such a great support and all these things that I was thinking, I, don't, I might not even have those. I might not even live to have those. And so it actually made it worse for me. And my uncle, I was like, never have that person come here again. And I was so upset. And he's like, okay, I just need to have you talk to someone who's like your age. And I was like, I don't care what type of cancer they had. So then he ended up setting me up with, with someone who was 17 years old, which is very close to 19. And all we, it didn't matter that she didn't have the same type of cancer as I did. It mattered that she was going through the same exact experience as I was. And we could cry over the fact that we lost her hair, which seems so petty. <laughs> but at 19, it's a huge deal. And so it was really nice to be able to talk with her. And I bonded with her immediately because of our shared experience. It didn't matter where we came from or what cancer we had or whatever. It was that we had experienced something very similar. All right. Well, we got to wrap in a second, but I really wanted to ask you a pointed question. Um, sure. Do, do you think that being a uh, young adult survivor who is currently a practicing physician helps you be a better physician and do you interact with other young physicians and make them aware of your quote-unquote anecdotal expertise as a patient advocate? <laughs> I, think it, I think it definitely has made me a better physician. Um, if anything, it gives me more patience. It gives me more understanding of when they're waiting for the test, the results to come back and all of the anxiety and the agonizing that goes along with that. I feel like I can relate a little bit more to that. I'm actually very open about my diagnosis. I don't obviously don't wear my wear you know a big sign that says hi I'm Erin I had cancer 12 years ago. But if people you know ask about it, they see my scar on my arm. Uh, they always ask if I had a skiing accident, which is hilarious. I'm like, wow, skiing's really dangerous. But then when I say oh I had cancer, then it's like oh my gosh, people just kind of that just sends them into a whole other direction and. I'm very open about it. I actually gave a Grand Rounds talk at Rady Children's Hospital um, this past June, and it was in front of all of my colleagues. It was about 100 people, and I talked about the AYA cancer movement. And so I started off with a case presentation, which was my case. And at the end of it, after I described this 19-year-old, I said, and this is the patient. And I put up my picture, and, like, almost all the jobs in the room dropped because these were people I'd worked with for four years who had no idea, but not because I hide it. But I will give, you know, my story if I'm asked or if, you know, I say, oh, I had something similar like this happen to me. And I've shared stories with patients as well. If I feel comfortable with the patient, especially when I was on my hemonchor patient, I've shared stories with them so that they know that I'm not just a doctor saying, oh, I understand. It's I understand because blah, 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 because I did, too, and I went through it as well. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the show tonight. An incredible story. We're going to start a small little click doctors who are young adult survivors <laughs> in our little camp there but i think that the uh, i i assume you're going to come back to vegas for 2014 next april and if i will hope to, hope to see you before then i'm actually going to be out in the oc in uh, october so i'll keep you posted offline about that oh please do i'd love to meet up with you all right well thank you so much uh Ar dr aaron o'leary thank you so much thank you thanks for having me all right, now real quick here for the news, and Hello, we're up. I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Matt, you can head on over to events.supercancer.org, events.supercancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Some things be happening in your neck of the woods. We certainly don't want you missing out, as I say two words at once. 
All right, we have upcoming meetups in Redlands, California, Gillette, Wyoming, Seattle, Washington, Scottsdale, Arizona, Orlando, Florida, Rochelle Park, New Jersey, and Showman, Showman, Sherman Oaks, California. That's a lot of meetups. That's a lot of meetups. Good stuff. All right, save the date for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults. Uh, April 25, 26, 27 at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. Visit omg2014.org. Sign up for the official mailing list and join the official OMG Summit Group on Facebook. The Stupid Cancer Store has awesome products for sale right now. Sport your gear. Send in your pics. We'll Instagram, post them on the wall. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. StupidCancerStore.org. And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums is a premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.org and sign up with one click through Facebook, and that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, here we go. The big moment. The big deal. Andrew McMahon, returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show, was 22 uh, and diagnosed with acute lymphoma. Acute lymphatic leukemia, ALL, which I used to think was all cancers. During his battle with ALL, it became clear to Andrew that there were still major shortfalls in treatment, support, and research on behalf of the young adult demographic. In an effort to initiate change and provide a voice for the generations of young adults who have been diagnosed with cancer, he founded the Dear Jack Foundation in July of 2006, and he's here with us tonight. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the one and only Andrew McMahon. Andrew. Welcome. Hey, how are you? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you again. I be able to, it's been three years since we had you on the show, so it's incredibly exciting that you're back, and we have a slightly larger audience now. It may be close to fifty or 60,000 people per show. Pretty amazing, man. I was looking at the, uh, the numbers. I'm pretty proud of you guys and what you're, uh, what you're up to. No, we're proud of you, too. And i got to tell you, Steve is an amazing guy. It's been great to get to know him more, uh, more readily. I see him every time I'm in Chicago, and he's the man you lucked out. Yeah, he's... Uh... You know, you have these kind of these, these strange connections that happen as you, you sort of walk the road of life. And uh, and Steve, um, you know, Steve is, is one of those for me. Uh, he really has been a, a, a huge, has had a huge impact on, on sort of our cause and our initiative and, and steering it and helping, uh, helping carry the load for sure. Well, he gave me three songs to play. We have a half hour to talk to you and we've got a lot to, to cover. And we have, a, we have a special guest co-host from our Young Adult Survivor um, uh, board, who is your biggest fan. She was actually Aww. on the show with you three years ago in the spotlight, and her name is Erica Reyes, and uh, she, uh, actually Erica Malott, because she got married since she was on the show last time, but Erica is on the line. Hi, Erica. Hi, how are you? Good. Hey, Erica, how's it going? Yeah, I'm nice talking great. to you, Erica. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got to see your show uh, an evening with Andrew McMahon in D.C., uh, thanks to one of our great friends also involved in the young adult community, uh, Bree Ryback, and I promised I would give a personal thank you for that. I owe her for that. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad you made it out. That's awesome. Those were, uh, yeah, those were fun ones. <laughs> so yes, it was. So let's start at the, uh, at the beginning here. Again, I joked that when I, first, when I first got into cancer advocacy, I had brain cancer, so I didn't know anything about blood cancers. When I first read that someone had ALL, I literally thought they had all cancers. But apparently that is not the case. But I'd love to hear how all this kind of started. What were you up to at 22, your life symptoms, and that crazy story? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think, you know, I was probably up to it a lot of, well, not, a, I guess, all 22-year-olds. I mean, generally speaking, I was I was out having a really good time all the time, you know, and then and I, was, uh, I was on the road. I just, uh, you know, sort of packed up something corporate and put it on hiatus and, and, and written this record um, called Everything in Transit, the first Jack's Mannequin record, and and uh, was was really kind of in this moment where I was taking a big chance and, and you know, fired up on, on starting something new. Uh, a lot of people probably thought I was, crazy at the time but i was sort of back in a back in a van with a new band and, and trying to uh you know to get some traction and get people to hear these new songs um and yeah that's when i found myself you know i was on that very first van tour um when my voice just started going out I, and i was not one to really have voice troubles typically um so i ignored him for a good several weeks as I think a lot of young adults, uh, you know, the cancer patients end up, you know, sort of encountering this thing where they, they think, oh, I'll be fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, you know, finally it was just the fact that I couldn't sing and I had an important show coming up that uh, that got me to the doctor. And and the voice doctor was actually the guy that, that, that found it. Wow, that's pretty crazy. So then after your quick diagnosis, then you had chemo, radiation, a stem cell transplant. Why don't you tell us about all your treatment and everything you went through and down to your transfer from your sister and the family dynamic and everything. It's an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, it was crazy. I was in New York City, which is not where I live. It was actually the opposite side of the country. At that point, I was living in a, a town called San Clemente uh, in, in South Orange County in California. And, and so they, you know, the, there was basically the voice doctor sort of found the, the really bad blood work you know he t- he saw me and i was like i just went in for blood work and he said you don't look good and i said I've, well, I've probably been partying a lot you know he's like no 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 you look like a ghost i'm going to take your blood work and so he did <clears throat> and then it was uh it was the next day when i was uh you know when i was finishing this record that the everything transit record we were getting mastered and he sent me to uh you know i got the phone call after i got out of the uh, the session that said like look you need to call me right away you need to go to the hospital and uh, so once I was in New York Presbyterian, it was Memorial Day weekend, so it took them like a week before they, they finally got the results of the, uh, the first bone marrow biopsy, which diagnosed it as uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia. And, you know, basically they wanted to treat me in New York, which for me, you know, it's like I had, you know, I had a couple of close family members out there, but my whole support system was in California. Um, and I was, you know, really blessed as I, I was you know, on a lot of my journey uh, with cancer that, you know, he said the only way he would release me was is, was if I, you know, basically uh, got a private plane and, and flew home. And at that point, my label, Maverick Records, and my, my manager, Carl Stubner, and, and my agent, uh, APA, um, they all chipped in for, for a plane and flew me home. Well, I get choked up even just <laughs> reliving it, truthfully. But, uh, but no, so then I, I got back to... A, I got back to California. I had an amazing doctor at UCLA, a guy named Gary Schiller, um, who, you know, I, I, I chose to be treated as, as, I guess, an adult, so to speak. You know, this is the thing that I think a lot of people don't get about a lot of young adult cancers is that there aren't really specific protocols built for people our age. You know, and that's something that I've really tried to raise a lot of awareness about. You know, when you, you already find out that you're sick and and you're facing this horrible thing and you're you're at kind of already a stage in your life where you, you sort of think you're invincible and you're finding out, you know, quite the contrary. Then the next thing you find out is that they don't really have a specific protocol for you that's tailored to who you are. You're either going to be treated as a pediatric or you're going to be treated as somebody much older. And 
um, that was something that we really struggled with as a family um, and spent a lot of time, you know, on, on the phone with people and, and with experts trying to figure out uh, what to do. And, and I sort of went against the grain and chose to be treated as an adult, but more so because of the doctor I was going to see was this, this amazing leukemia doctor named Gary Schiller at UCLA. Um, so, so, so we started, you know, I mean, I got, I got there the first thing, that happened is he told me he wouldn't treat me unless I, uh, unless I, uh, sperm bank, you know, unless I donate, you know, or, you know, whatever, uh, bank my sperm so that I could potentially have a, have a child in the, uh, in the future. Again, small um, victory for the young adult patient. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, yeah, it, it, but it's strange, you know, it's like, I remember at that point I, I, I was like, listen, man, like that is not, I like, I'm like, hook me up to that machine. Like right now, let's get this going. You know, like right. I, I think at that point you're just eager I'd already been sitting in a hospital for a week on the other side of the country, you know, fighting whatever little infections and things pop up because you're so, you know, so already, you know, already in such a bad place. Um, and then here I am, you know, and I, I just want to start the day I get in there, and he says, no, you've got to do this first, you know. So waited another day or two, got that done, and then, uh, and then I started my treatment. Um, my first round of treatment was, was particularly brutal. Um, you know they by you know by all accounts and, and frankly by the end I was so so out of it because I had, I had, uh, transmitted pneumonia in the hospital um, and so there was a good three days where you know I was you know packed on ice and and was really kind of delirious and in and out of it where you know there was they were basically almost about to call all my family and that was when my counts turned around luckily um, was sort of on that very last day you know and um, and it was also right in that window that my my doctor tested my one full-blooded sibling, um, Kate, to see if she might possibly be a match for a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant, and she was miraculously. We found that out sort of shortly after I was, you know, recovering from the pneumonia and heading back home uh, after my first round of therapy, um, and and then that was a <clears throat> and then that's what I did for the next you know the next several. Months, I guess it was probably about a month to two months. I spent recovering from pneumonia, and and they, you know, and and making the decision, which is a tricky decision at that point, but uh, making the decision to go forward with a stem cell transplant rather than take the what would have been the, I think the more popular course of therapy at the time, and and frankly, like uh, what a handful of second opinions recommended that I do, which was stay on the chemotherapy route for for three years. So you were writing music this entire time, correct? No, truthfully, I wasn't. I, 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 I did, I did write. At I think when I got back from the hospital, the first time I wrote, um, I wrote a song. Um, I wrote a song. Well, yeah, I wrote a couple. I wrote a song called uh, "The Lights and Buzz," which was a, which was like a basically a holiday track for um, a holiday track for for K Rock, um, <laughs> which is a, a crazy that that's the kind of thing that I was thinking about at that time. But that's sort of how gross my ambition was. I was, still, <laughs> I was still trying to work radio from the hospital bed, as pathetic as it sounds. But, uh, but um, and, then, and then, yeah, I, I, knowing that I was going to go in and get a transplant from my sister, I finished a song that I had started the previous year called There, There, Katie, um, which was kind of really originally about my sister when she was going through a hard time. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I never finished it. I didn't have a second verse. And, and, and as I find out that she's going to be the one to get me, you know, hopefully through a, a really hard, hard thing, I, it seemed that it was a, 
sort of uh, you know poetic justice or something that 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 this song kind of come full circle. Um, so well, I we have it. Dark I, 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 I and that. Swim. What about those tunes? We have those to to play right now. Do you want to talk about one of them real quick, and we'll cut away? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you want to do Dark Blue, I mean, the the strange thing about that song, if you listen to it, and like a lot of the songs on Everything in Transit, is there's this odd sort of foreboding. Um, you know that if you if you hear the the lyrics, it it certainly sounds like I felt like something was coming, which I don't necessarily think that I did, but uh, but certainly listening to it in that hospital room, uh, mastering the record from the hospital bed, it, 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 it certainly felt that way. But, yeah, if you want to play that one, go for it. Sure, so your Can Yoda ask, moment. Um, oh, sorry, Matthew. <laughs> I just wanted to ask, um, because of that song, or because of the album, actually, sorry, uh, a lot of people felt like you were almost like predicting your cancer diagnosis with that album. Uh, what, what was your mindset at the time when you were writing it? Obviously, you had no idea. So what were you I thinking would, at that time? In all honesty, I was I was I was really heartbroken. You know, I, I I had made a decision, you know, a difficult decision in in the previous year um, that to separate from my girlfriend, who I've been with for for a long time. But I think for a lot of reasons that you you sort of break up with people you love when you're that age, which is just your you know your 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 head's in kind of a different place. I was like pursuing music. I was on the road constantly. It just uh, it it just didn't feel like the right time to sort of be connected to anyone or anything. I mean, truthfully, I was I was sort of even, you know, not not estranged, but I, my family and I weren't even really speaking all that regularly. I was kind of very, like, loose satellite at that point. And so a lot of the songs, I think, were really reflective of of the of this breakup and this experience of feeling um, of feeling kind of sick and feeling hurt. And I, I, tr- I sort of, I, I, I found myself gravitating towards symbolism like hospitals and ambulances and and illness strangely you know because i think i felt um i think i because i felt hurt you know and and i i think you know it it probably would have just been thought of as a really great breakup record but, I, but right. there, there ended up being an additional layer i suppose as uh as it uh as, as the story kind of unfolded i guess well let's uh let's see what the all the fuss is all about Go for it. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a really good song. Here we go. Here's Dark Blue by Andrew McMahon.
short because it's a long song. we got a lot more to talk about with uh, Andrew yeah, Pan here tonight. So uh, we have a, your, your, your bestie Erica has some more questions for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, you know, we obviously all watched your documentary, Dear Jack, and, you know, in the film you actually discussed how you never intended to make it into a documentary. So what made you think about filming your, your I guess, your treatment throughout the time you know it was was kind of this strange as a lot of things i feel like right around that that time were was these kind of twists of fate you know and 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 so basically i had recorded a lot of the transit record and then when i signed to maverick um you know and 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 was going to go in and kind of do this big round of finishing where we added some guitars and did a lot of vocals and all these things they said you know we'll buy you a video camera you know just document what you can and and you know, we'll use it for short web clips and, you know, just the, the typical kind of, uh, you know, label from promo stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of speaking to that that moment I was in where I, I, I was kind of, you know, for the first time sort of striking out on my own. I was, you know, you know, not in something corporate who we've been on the road for three years and right on top of each other. And I've been, you know, and I was now single and all these things. I just, I used that video camera for months as like just a diary. And it truly turned into like, like my buddy, <laughs> like I had this right. thing as my sidekick, I'd keep it in my passenger seat and something would come up and I would just talk to the camera and it became this sort of confidant and and strangely, you know, then I then I, I find myself in the situation where I'm sick and I remember calling my tour manager, um, you know, when they put me in the hospital, I said, bring my piano and my video camera <laughs> and and um, and so that was how it all started, you know, and, and you know, I, I I don't think the instinct was really as much about like who could I share this with as much for me as it it, was, it had become this sort of like uh, art therapy thing where I I knew like I I could kind of unpack these 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 moments someplace and and, and kind of get them off my chest and that's really how it how it all began. Right. I mean, I I also was diagnosed with ALL. I'm not. I can't remember if Matthew had mentioned that and. You know, when I, I I was diagnosed as a child, but going through young adult survivorship, when you came out with this documentary, it was amazing because I'd already been in a couple years remission. Right. But your documentary really hit me at home. You know, it was it was exactly still the same, like the treatments and everything, and just having you as someone that I used to love listening to your music and everything, having you out there and making that public was just amazing, and it changed my life. That's, that, I mean, it's, it's really powerful to hear it truthfully. You know, when we were in the process, it was it was really hard to to do and hard to get made because as soon as I had these, you know, I had a, I had a couple of friends who were, you know, who were, who were experimenting in documentary film, you know, and they they didn't end up being the final guys to actually do the last edit, but they were the ones who knew me and had seen me in the hospital because they were just visiting, you know, as friends and 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 knew that the footage existed and. They were the ones who first asked to see it, you know, and it was hard to give up because I wasn't sure if I wanted to share it, you know, and and finally it was it was it was sort of impressed upon me like look let's let us try and get through this and if you don't like it when it's done we won't do it 
but that you know I think very much for the reason you mentioned that the, their their feeling was at that point that this would be something that could possibly help people or could or could give people something to relate to you know uh, and 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 so for me I mean I was still in the haze I think as you would probably recall you know those those kind of years post treatment are pretty strange years you know and, and so for me. I had to kind of trust that and let them let them go. And once I finally saw the, the last cut, and I signed off, it was like, okay, let's 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 try this. You know, I felt like at least I knew it was an honest portrayal of what happened, and and that's always been my my barometer for art is just you know, does it feel true? Does it feel honest? And and once it does, that's usually when I say, okay, put it out. Andrew, we have a we we have a quick question from the chat room. Um, yeah. First of all, congrats on the Emmy nom. Uh, it was really Thank amazing. You. Were you, you like in a liquor bottle when that happened and just rejoiced, or were you just ready to jump into a bar and drink to celebrate? Uh, are we talking about the Emmys? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, no, I, 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 I didn't put myself right in a liquor bottle. I was actually asleep. <laughs> that would be uh, I was asleep, and it was like a, you know, I, I, I probably had the night before, and I woke up at 11 uh, to a phone call from the writer of Smash. Uh, um and, you know, this is the guy who brought me in because he really loved my music and believed in me. And he said, you know, you're probably not the guy that these producers would hire, but I think you're really good, and I'd like to include you uh, in our list of writers. And so he called me, and he said, congratulations, man. And I had, I had no idea why he would even be calling me. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you haven't heard you're nominated, you know. And so, uh, so no, I mean, for me, it was, it was, it was overwhelming, though. I never expected that to hear something like that, I would be that affected by it. You know, I've always sort of, like, not you know, never expected to get awards, so you just don't really think about it. But I, I was, I was, it was a very, uh, it was a very proud phone call to my to my wife and my my mother. Uh, you know, as soon right. as I, I heard it was, it was pretty cool. Well, well deserved. I, I wanted to move on real to uh, to the Dear Jack Foundation because you yeah. you predate uh, Stupid Cancer by a year. I started it in 2007, and I always tell someone, don't start a charity. Please don't start a charity. But you started a charity. It's actually made a real difference, and I applaud you because you have truly you. become a card-carrying member of the young adult cancer movement. You, you walk the walk, you talk the talk, you know the stats. I've seen you do interviews. It, it's quite amazing what you've been able to sort of put together for yourself to advocate on behalf of our entire generation. So thank you for that. But what basically did inspire you to actually start a charity, and what does the charity specifically do? Well, like you know, I would say first and foremost, it was it was my fans that inspired me. Um, they, when when they found out I was sick, they galvanized themselves into this movement uh, on my behalf. You know, and it was it was sort of this disparate, like just let's find a way to raise money and and put it wherever we can. And we started with the Pediatric Cancer Research Foundation was one of our main uh, recipients. Um, and you know, and through the years, you know, we've done a lot of work with Leukemia Lymphoma Society. We've uh, done grants. Uh, for the UCLA stem cell program that I, I that I you know hold responsible for saving me um, and and at tons of other charities, I think it was probably closer to 2008 and nine after I I would argue I started kind of emerging from the fog of all of this, um, you know that for me it really registered like you know yeah we can be another cancer charity and not that there's anything wrong with that I, I applaud anybody who's who's working on behalf of any of these uh, these diseases. But it really, I think, occurred to me in that moment, what we need to do is we need to be a voice for young adults because this is what I keep coming back to and what I keep, when I would ask these questions 
of you know folks at these different research organizations and different hospitals, I I kept getting the same answers. And we know the stats. I mean, this this demographic isn't really seeing improvement in their survival rates. You know, and 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 it became clear that there just needed to be uh, more voices. You know, and more people saying, look at this this age demographic that is under appreciated, understudied, under-researched, yet these are, this is the time that you graduate from high school and college and have your first love, get married, your first real job, you know, all these, these huge milestones happen in this, this window, and if you get cancer, you're going to be worse off than a lot of people, and that, that is, I think, the moment that really changed things for me when I realized that. Well, I will say that when I first found out that you created the your Jack Kings through Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I immediately jumped on that, and at the time I lived in Gainesville, Florida, and yeah. you know it was just amazing because it was really nice to see people just to be moved by you. You know they were willing to help this cause. You know it was I will say like you made a huge impact in that. Um, well, those teams, and yeah, the, the Life and Night teams are always sort of a source of inspiration for me. You know and. And and I like to walk every year. Anytime I'm you know in town to walk, I walk. And and yeah, I I, it, 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 I think we all know. I mean, I think we're all on this call because uh, of what we went through personally, and and the fact that it, it you know you get to the other side and you realize, well, look, you know, you, this is this is what we you know you live you know, and, and you've been given a gift that a lot of us don't get, and a lot of our friends haven't. And I, I, you know, I'm sure as all of you have lost a lot of friends along the way. And uh, and yeah, I, I think that's I think that's why it's so important. Yeah. yeah, I will say that as someone who is a young adult survivor, that was one of the sorry to say this, Matthew, but he was the first young adult organization that I started kind of joining because um, you were before stupid cancer, and then finding the two of you now, like it's amazing. It's just great to see how how the young adult cancer advocacy group has just been expanding so quickly. It's not well, yeah, cheating I, if I'm, you haven't dated yet. What's that? It's not cheating if you haven't dated yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty amazing thing. I'm and we're a firm believer, like our organization. We and and I, I'm sure you guys are the same way. But you know, I know there's a lot of like there's a lot of politics that go into this nonprofit world that we try and keep our heads out of. You know, and like we're really about supporting organizations. You know, like I think to to me, you know, when you have this sort of thing where there is this lack of research and there's this lack of focus. I think it's really about banding together, you know, with all of these these organizations and saying we have we have a message. Like, let's put our voices together and figure out how to work together to to actually accomplish this goal. Because there's so many there's so many fights that need fighting in this in this particular demographic, you know. And I, I think we've just scratched the surface in a lot of ways. Yeah, we're gonna have to so figure out a way to get to the Vegas next April to perform for 600 survivors. Dude, well, yeah. I mean, I, that that sounds amazing. Let me let me know what uh, <laughs> let me know what's up, and if I can be there, I'll be there. I'll just bribe Steve with some alcohol or something. Uh, you know, Vegas is not far for me, and and just being in Vegas is usually a good enough excuse for for me. Period. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, let alone getting to play for for these survivors. I mean, that'd be amazing. Just let me know what's up. Damn straight. Uh, we have an uh, we sent over a new song from your new album, and I'm gonna mess up pronouncing this, but I think Maureen figured out how to pronounce it. Yeah, is that synesthesia? You got it. Wow! Yeah, probably not my, my probably not my wisest uh, my wisest <laughs> choice of single title, um, you know. But a song I'm very proud of, nevertheless. So tell us about it, and we'll cut away to it. 
Well, you know, it's, it's actually it kind of ties back to all this. This was a uh, you know, the first time I heard of synesthesia was um, was actually when Steve forwarded on this this really amazing article about um, somebody who had been in treatment for uh, for I believe it was a brain tumor um, and had developed synesthesia, which is this condition where you see uh, where you see colors when you hear music. And I had always wanted to write about it. Um, and I, I sort of uh, I found myself at the piano one day kind of writing a story that was really about kind of where I was at this moment in my life and kind of taking a look at, at the things that matter to me, my family, and, 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 and sort of this, uh, this life of being on the road as a, as a musician and, and all these things. And, uh, and it seemed like an appropriate uh, place to, to, to fit these lyrics in about seeing colors. All right. Well, uh, as a colorblind cancer survivor, I support this message. Here you go. Here's uh, Maureen. Say it again. Spin. Now I'm messed up. <laughs> you know, oh. you, Andrew synesthesia McMahon. Okay, synesthesia. by Andrew McMahon. Here we go. I saw pictures from the space shuttle, North America at night. I could almost see my house. I could almost see the rest of my life. My mother's in the hospital And my friends are in the news Collecting trophies for the songs they wrote When we lived in the shadow of the moon Guess I never made a gold record And I've never been to Mars But I've traveled around this world Shooting fireworks My brother looks so proud like he woke up in this perfect dream. And I've known you all my life, but I knew you long before that too. Let's go dancing to the songs we wrote when we lived in the shadow of the moon. And I see colors when I
and I hope very much that uh, that it's a calling card to some of my best songs. Awesome. And now I have to ask this. I just I actually just moved from I grew up in California, moved to Florida uh, for school and love, I guess, really. Um, and now I'm back in my home state. I'm actually I just moved to Southern California, and the first thing I did when I moved here was looking for one of your concerts. And lo and behold, there are none. Are you planning on coming back to SoCal anytime soon? Well, the one the one show you can expect is the one that we try and do every year, and so far have have uh, been able to since we, we we started as a tradition. And this uh, will be our this will be our third annual uh, Dear Jack benefit at the El Rey in Los Angeles on November 11th. Don't quote me 100 percent, but if it's not the 11th, it'll be the 12th. But we try and shoot for 11-11 every year. So, uh, so yeah, you could expect one then in November. Awesome. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's excited to hear that in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> no, and, uh, and just to wrap up here, I, I want to mention that Dear Jack Foundation has supported many of our friends and colleagues in the young adult cancer advocacy world, including our partners over at First Ascent. Uh, yeah. We do some amazing work with them year-round, back and forth. And I actually will be attending my first FD retreat next spring uh, before I turn 40 and age out and become ineligible. Well, I'm actually going to attend my very first one this this summer uh, in September, I think. So, uh, yeah, we're really, I'm really excited. It's something I've been looking forward to in a big way. All right, we're, we're going to take a betting pool on what your FD nickname is going to be in advance of you getting there. There are nicknames. Oh, this is scary. I know you're in trouble. You are in serious trouble, my friend. I've been given a lot of strange nicknames over the years, so we'll see. What, we'll see if they can top it. We'll see what it is. Well, anyway, I again, I can't thank you enough for helping us close out Season 12. This is our 275th broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show, and I could not think of a more fitting uh, special guest to have on. Um, good luck to you. Uh, God bless you and your family. Keep the music coming, and we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much, and congratulations on, uh, on your big... Uh your big 275, you say? 275? Yeah, 275, yes. That's Seven awesome, years man. now. Well, you guys are amazing. doing amazing stuff. I'm really proud to be, uh, be a part of it, and uh, thanks for, for including me. All right, we'll talk soon. Andrew McMahon, everybody. <laughs> Erica, are you satisfied? I am. Thank you so much. That is, like, <laughs> you have like fulfilled an Andrew McMahon fan dream of mine. Like That just was wonderful. And I feel terrible because there's so many fans here in the chat and listening, and I'm sure they wish they were in my shoes, but I hope I, I, hope I did them justice. <laughs> no, and it's amazing to have this, this level of engagement on our chat rooms, and, and I can't wait to see the metrics on who listened to the show tonight and live on the archives. Um, really great, really amazing guy, very talented. And again, he he walks the walk and he talks the talk. He knows the stats. Mm-hmm. He advocates on a good soapbox. He he he's real. And uh, I thank him for everything he does. His service to the uh, young adult cancer movement. Um, so that's it, huh? Yeah. Wow. That's great show. show. Very good show. Amazing way to close amazing. out. Yeah. Erica has a future in radio. Yeah. <laughs> hey, call me up. You know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Erica, thanks so much. Glad we made it work. Thank you. Um, hope to see you soon. I will be out in Southern California in October for an event with Lenny. I'll be there I before in be... September. And can I be there in September? I will be expecting the both of you, and if I don't see you guys, We're in you trouble. Know, yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. All right, well, take care, <laughs> Erica. Again. All right, bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, well, now it is time to wrap our show with our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the... Uh, Internets. 
you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. As Matthew mentioned, our 275th broadcast and season finale of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. All right, we'd like to thank our guest, Aaron O'Leary, and the one and only Andrew McMahon. And that's it. We, season 12 is officially a wrap. We'll be on hiatus until our season 13 premiere broadcast on Monday, September 16th. All right, folks, if you missed any of our past broadcasts, you can listen to them all for free anytime on iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, and the Blog Talk Radio Network. Just visit stupidcancershow.org slash iTunes or slash iHeartRadio, and you're good to go. Remember, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, Maureen Sweet, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Have a great summer. We'll see you back here for Season 13 on September 16th. Good night, folks. Good night.